Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. After the many months of shutdowns, quarantines, virtual activities, and otherwise social distancing, it's nice to be able to catch up with old friends. The Legacy Project was inspired the first time the Names Project AIDS Memorial quilt was shown at the National March on Washington for LGBTQ Civil Rights in 1987. And to answer the question, who would remember those who came before us when we're gone? Some 34 years later, the Legacy Project under the leadership of Executive Director Victor Salvo, continues to eliminate and affirm the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people. Some of the activities, like the Legacy Wall, a -a one-of-a-kind, digitally interactive traveling exhibit, has had to be shelved. Tours of the Legacy Walk have resumed with smaller groups and social distancing in place. The Legacy Project Education Initiative was launched in conjunction with partners at Illinois Safe Schools Alliance, Public Health Institute of Metropolitan Chicago, and Equality Illinois. It offers a new search portal to help teachers create a classroom experience which meets the requirements of Illinois' new inclusive curriculum law, but is flexible enough to be used by teachers everywhere. What does the future hold for this education initiative, the Legacy Project, the Legacy Wall, and this fall's Legacy Wall inductees? We get an update today from the keeper of the stream, Victor Salvo. Victor, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. It's been a minute since we've talked. How have you been? I have been doing very well. I had some health issues in 2020. That's kind of how I spent my COVID vacation that were not related to COVID, believe it or not. But uh, I'm actually fine now, uh, completely on the the mend. And uh, we're doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's funny how, you know, it's... We've been so caught up in that that people tend to forget, you know, that we can get sick from something else, you know, that we have to recover from. So I'm glad you're doing better. Yeah, I mean, you know, this has been quite a time. Yes, it has. I know. I know. So, you know, I wanted to get back with you to talk about the Legacy Project 
I mean, it's something that continues to go on. We we keep hearing about, you know, people who pass, particularly um, during this period of time. Sometimes we don't hear until afterwards. But, you know, just to sort of catch up and and talk about legacy project, past, present, and future. For anyone who doesn't didn't hear our earlier broadcast or isn't familiar with the legacy project and the legacy wall, could you sort of give us a snapshot of what made it come about and what it's all about? I would be delighted. Um, the Legacy Project is a nonprofit charity that is focused on culture and education with a specific interest in the contributions of LGBTQ people to world history and culture. We have within our uh, our box of tools, let's say, um, a number of different aspects that many people will be surprised uh, to learn about, I think. Um, the first one that was created was the Legacy Walk, which is the world's only outdoor LGBTQ history museum. It spans a mile on North Halstead Street in Chicago, and it features 40 bronze memorials um, each one with a roughly three to four hundred word paragraph explaining about that individual's contributions and and how they fit in the overall scheme of things. Um, I I will say that like the project itself, the Legacy Walk is not focused on the movement, um, particularly though we do certainly have movement activists. Uh, included in that group because the movement is part of history, of course. But um, the walk is really focused on uh, the contributions of people across multiple fields of contribution and their achievements therein. Uh, So most of the individuals um, in their lifetime uh, did not particularly identify as LGBTQ because most of them lived during a time when to do so was quite frankly lethal um, for them uh, because they lived in a, in a time when, when uh, it was illegal basically to be anything other than a cisgender person. So, um, so like I said, there's 40 bronze memorials on the Legacy Walk. Um, it functions as not only a tourist attraction, but also as an outdoor classroom because during the school year, we bring um, a number of uh, middle school and high school field trips come to the site and take a tour and learn about um, these individuals, many of whom they've already heard of but were never told were um, members of the LGBTQ community. So that's one aspect of the project. The other is uh, the Legacy Wall, um, which is a touring installation uh, roughly the size of a very large trade show installation that has been on a national tour since 2015, has been to 36 cities in the United States and has been seen by more than 500,000 people. The Legacy Wall features 125 biographical elements, each of which is digitally interactive. So while in addition to reading the content and looking at the images, you can scan the code with your phone and then open up additional video and education tools from the wall. And the wall goes to all different kinds of places where it wouldn't be expected to be seen. Unlike the walk, which is in the middle of, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ community in Chicago, the wall 
gets dropped in places where um, it is very much an anomaly and it always causes a stir, but in the end is extremely well received and, and well attended. The third aspect of the project is the Legacy Project Education Initiative, um, which is right now the foundation of Illinois' new LGBTQ inclusive curriculum. Uh, in 2019, working with our partners at Equality Illinois and Illinois Safe Schools and Public Health Institute in Metropolitan Chicago, we wrote and passed legislation at the state capitol mandating the inclusion of LGBTQ contributions to history and culture in K-12 through education. And now that education portal is up and running. And uh, finally, after the first year of dealing with COVID, which, as I'm sure your listeners can imagine, impacted everything, um, the focus is really starting to turn onto uh, the education program. So all three of these elements, um, in spite of COVID, um, have been doing their thing. And uh, we're thrilled to have them um, all finally up and operating. You know, in some ways, the legacy wall, I mean, like you had that going, but the fact that it's digitally interactive, that people can do that, you know, how did it fare during this time? Because it seems like it was like right there on the cusp of when we were all sort of like going online for everything, that here is a way to explore our community's legacy that's been out there. Well, unfortunately, COVID, um, the most substantial hit that we took was with having to put the legacy wall in mothballs because um, obviously with with COVID being, um, you know, folks gathering in public places, being the most vulnerable for spreading the virus, we almost overnight lost two full calendar years of bookings, and it takes a year to book the legacy wall. So all of our our revenue dropped. Um, I think we sustained uh, for we're in the second year of a of two consecutive years of eighty percent revenue loss because the wall was really the primary revenue driver. Um, it costs a great deal of money to to bring it someplace and to host it. So. Um, it was our our greatest ambassadorial tool, shall we say, and it had to be sidelined because we, you know, public venues were closing. All the places that were were set up to host it were closing, so there was really nothing that we could do. Um, we did have a couple of installations that were had already been paid but had to be canceled. Um, that we hope to reschedule. One hopefully will will take place in March of um 2022 but you know now with the delta variant who 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 knows you know what's going to happen um but the goal is ultimately to bring the wall uh back out of mothballs and i'm happy to say that um we did just recently get an inquiry to bring it bring it out um to central illinois uh during um lgbtq history month in october um with all considerations being you know what they are as far as gathering in public space the interesting thing about the wall is that it's one of the few exhibits of its kind that actually lends itself to um let's say scheduling people for a block of time 
to look at it as opposed to simply throwing open the doors. Because the wall requires you to get up close to it to read it, um, it can only sustain so many people uh, at a time. You know, you can't have like 100 people standing around it because 90% of them will not be able to see what they're looking at uh, because you have to get close to it. So it really is the kind of thing that you could bring in, you know, uh, small groups and stagger them. You know, and and it's a very intimate kind of experience anyway. And I've noticed just in the dynamic of how people interact with the wall, it's always just, you know, one person, two people, and there's never more than maybe three or four, you know, small clumps of people looking at it at a time. And I thought, you know, maybe we could look at refashioning our marketing around this, um, that for those installations which have reopened, you know, since we, we kind of had a, a, a brief respite there before the surge of the Delta virus. A lot of places that were closed before are going to remain open just with more restrictions on them as opposed to closing across the board, which a lot of you know places had to do completely. So I'm looking at um, tweaking our marketing materials to basically demonstrate that it's actually very safe to have the wall around. Um, and invite people as long as they're they're regulated, you know, at the rate in uh-huh. which they can they can come in. So it so it it lends itself to the current circumstances, but you know it's it's still uh, it's still a challenge because you know public venues are concerned for all the right reasons, and um, so we're hoping hoping for the best. And if it does um, get out there in October, uh, would be would be awesome. Because we know we've never really marketed the wall. The wall has always sold itself. Wherever it has gone, it has produced two additional installations simply from the people who came to see it at that one. So without us doing anything, we had years worth of bookings um, that we never had to do anything for except schedule the logistics and, you know... (laughs) issue the invoices uh so uh, so now it's a little bit it's a little bit different we're kind of starting from a dead stop and we'll see what happens but i i still think that the the power of the information is such that um it will regain traction fairly quickly as long as we can convince uh potential hosts that this is a safe a safe thing to bring into their installations, you know, if it's regulated properly. So we'll see what happens. You know, I'm looking forward to it. And with the legacy walk, we had to basically stop all public tours, as you can imagine, um, Uh of the outdoor installation, Uh because everything, all the museums in in Chicago were closed. But when the restrictions were eased at the beginning of the summer, we resumed tours. And at first we did it with masks on and then the city, you know, kind of lifted that because it was outside. And then we did it without masks on, but with social distancing. And I just did one this past Saturday and everybody on the tour, it was a school group, a college group. They were all vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. Um, You know, we kept our reasonable distance from each other, but that group of students is together all the time, you know, and they're not standing six feet apart, I can assure you. So it was one of those situations where we're outdoors, you know, um, it was a windy day, a hot day. And so I I do it, I don't particularly feel um, vulnerable or scared, or, you know, maybe I'm being unrealistic and I should be more, you know, more vigilant about it. Um, but I always feel like it's really the people who are not vaccinated that are have much more 
um, to lose than I do. Uh, and so we, we still operate within the city guidelines and, um, but we haven't done as many, obviously, just because it's been so weird. But uh, we have noticed that people do want to get out and do things. You know, um, we had a very successful event in July. Uh, we um, chartered a, a boat to uh, go out on the Chicago River because um, we have this thing in Chicago called Art on the Mart, which is um, a laser projection of artwork that's that's projected onto the merchandise mart whose facade is roughly two and a half acres in size. It's the largest projection screen in the world. And they were featuring the art of Frida Kahlo, who's one of our inductees on the legacy walk on the legacy wall. So we started a boat, you know, we got about 130 people out there and um, we went into the river and parked ourselves in front of the merchandise mart and saw the art exhibit up close, you know, with music, and that was a lot of fun. And much to my surprise, to be perfectly honest, that tour, which I was praying we'd break even on, sold out in nine days. Um, wow. So wow. it ended up being much more successful than we had anticipated. Um, it would be, uh, you know, under the circumstances we were operating at the time we scheduled it versus what was happening at the time it took place. Um, so, you know, the whole thing for anybody who works in a charity or relies on events to raise money or anything has been such a, you know, a crapshoot, you know, as far as what's going to work and what's not going to work. And it's very difficult to charities have really, really struggled. I feel like legacy has done a good job of managing its funds. And we had a tremendous year in 2019, um, having tripled our revenue. Uh, that was projected for that year. And that's largely what sustained us through this uh, leaner, leaner time, shall we say. But interestingly, Mm -hmm. this is actually, because we couldn't do so many other things, it it allowed us to focus um, all of our resources on expanding the education program, uh, which is really, you know, what I'd love to talk to you about the work that we're doing in in curriculum building um, here in Illinois and for the country at large. Well, we will get to that in a minute. You know, one of the things that I thought about, you know, that, that, you know, you talked about it, that what inspired the Legacy Project was the name project, the AIDS Memorial mm-hmm. Quilt. And, you know, our community, and you talked also about how you be kind of vigilant but aware of and feeling safe. Our community has gone through pandemics, you know, oh, yeah. and I think um when they were talking about how recently, in fact, I have friends who went to a Provincetown, and they were saying that part of how they were able to get ahead of that when there was this outbreak was because of people from the LGBTQ community who had been through a pandemic and were seeing things. And we were so good at, you know, seeing the signs, collecting information, doing that. And Mm -hmm. as I listen to people now, in our community, first of all, you know, they're part of being made to go back in, back in the closet. But then we seem to be, like, really getting it, you know, like, okay, mm-hmm. we've, you know, we've dealt with something, and now we it's preventable. This is what you need to do to stay preventable. How mm-hmm. do you feel? I mean, I went to something Saturday, and it was like people were, like, so glad to be out and wanting to hear about our lives. Do you, are you getting mm-hmm. feedback from the community about like, hey, 
we don't want to lose people. We want to know about people. We want to know about our history and how we've come through this. Is there from the community that thing? All right, let's keep this going. I would I would have to agree. I think um, part of it is uh, you know human beings are social creatures. We're not meant to all hide in our our caves and hibernate and you know, only communicate mm-hmm. by electronic means. Um, so there is a natural, almost biological hunger to gather. Uh, so when the opportunities have presented themselves. Um, Yes, people have really, uh, really stepped up, and the interest in our our content has not changed any. Mm-hmm. If anything, because of the shift to the education program, um, just as an example, you know, our our website, even as as late as um, twenty nineteen twenty twenty, would you know average maybe two to five thousand hits a month. You know, ballparking. Um, uh-huh. Once we entered the COVID era, and which happened to coincide with when the new curriculum materials needed to launch, they needed to be ready for schools by September of 2020. Um, by the time we were into the fall of 2020, we were averaging like 15,000 hits a month. Now we're over 25,000 hits a month. Uh-huh. So you're talking about, in the last two years, a 500% increase. Um, so the interest is there, and we're just, you know, try to do our best work to make sure the content is there for them. So, Okay, let's take a quick break, and then I want to talk about the education initiative. Because, sure. I mean, it, there, there's a synchronicity between everything that's happening and education. So we'll be right yes. back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm speaking with Victor Salvo. And, you know, I want to hear more about the Legacy Project Education Initiative, particularly because, okay, you have parents have an opportunity to develop their curriculum, have had an opportunity. And I also know that many young people in our community are looking for content. You know, they want to sure. they want to find out about them. And just like in the past, I mean, I've met young people who learn more about the LGBTQ community from online, some of it factual, some of them not. But mm-hmm. just as you hear, like, some schools don't want to have, you know, critical race theory talked about. There's still schools that don't want to talk about LGBTQ people and our role in history. And it mm-hmm. seems like this is the perfect time 
for the Legacy Project Education Initiative? Um, I would think so, and I too believe in sort of a synchronicity that you know, if if COVID hadn't happened, um, it would have been much more difficult to get all the pieces in place in time to meet the requirements of the law because we were so busy doing other things. You know, when the wall travels the country, I go with it. Um, okay. So it, it was it was funny how it it worked out and uh you know i'm a person of faith and i i don't question these things if it if it works out in your favor then clearly it was meant to so i'm just uh-huh. gonna get it back you know? um especially you know with this you know pandemic like you're saying we've already lived through one and as far as i'm concerned when i think back about what we all endured during the height of the the worst of the aids crisis COVID has been a cakewalk um, from a, a, a public perception. The people today, at least, well, at least 60% of the population, there's no, there's no allowing for the other 40%, which is kind of off in their own world. But, um, but for 60% of the population, they take it seriously and everybody does their part. And there's a sense of camaraderie, if, even if it's a, a shared frustration. There's still, we're all in this together kind of mentality, right? When, as you know, when we lived through the AIDS crisis, we were battling a plague and the general public was rooting for the plague. Thank you. Not for us. Mm-hmm. And um, we, were, we were left to die. It was 10 years between the first diagnosis with AIDS and when the first federal money began to flow. Everything else that happened in that intervening 10 years was money raised by our community for our, for our own self, whether it was to feed people, whether it was to house people, whether it was just to provide them hospice care or something, because a lot of these folks, because they had HIV AIDS, were not allowed into other nursing facilities. You know, and I'm not taking anything away, you know, let me preface that, I'm not taking anything away from the, the heroic doctors and nurses who did care for people in, mm-hmm. in AIDS wards and stuff. But that was largely a phenomenon of the, of the developed urban areas, as opposed to those who were so afflicted in rural areas where they did not have the support network around them. So we always have to think about that rural-urban divide a bit um we we enjoyed a great deal of support from outside of of lgbtq people solely um those of us living in urban areas um as well as a great deal of resistance of course but for those who did not live in those types of regions uh they were thrown to the wolves and many Mm -hmm. of them died alone and penniless and there was a, a the united states went through a very powerful social transformation because AIDS not only revealed so many inadequacies in the pharmaceutical industry, in the insurance industry, in the healthcare delivery industry, there were so many things that were revealed by that pandemic that have since been fixed, which is one of the reasons why we had a vaccine so quickly uh, now, mm-hmm. because it was those methods were developed in the process of trying to find a vaccine for HIV. Um, but... Society was changed because effectively, as you know, an entire generation of gay men was ripped out of the closet and their families had to make a decision, you know, and and AIDS did not care if you were black or white or Republican or Democrat or whatever. Like COVID, Mm -hmm. it was an equal opportunity killer. 
And it, it was a seismic, uh, I would say it released a political tsunami, very slow moving, that took almost 30 years to reach its crescendo. But everything we take for granted today, the gays in the military, the ability to get married, everything can be traced back to AIDS. Because that was know, where the, mo- mm-hmm. the movement began to change. And you know, and it's how, like you said, how people looked at it. At the height of the AIDS epidemic, you know, when we have people die, like you said, they were rooting for the plague. There was a stigma. Mm-hmm. And whether you did or not, if you said you were gay, people just automatically assumed they wanted to cut you off. You know, you were just like, you know, there was a stigma, there was hate. I mean, just because of who you were, you saw families throwing people out. Where now, Absolutely. it's like, oh, if they're unvaccinated, well, people, I think you might hear the harshing where they're stupid, they can be educated. But where for gay people, it was just like, that was a death sentence. You know, oh, yeah. and, we and were people expendable. just didn't we were care. Mm-hmm. We were expendable. The church felt, felt us, we were expendable. Certainly the political structure felt we were expendable. Um, most people did not know who we were or didn't know someone who was gay. AIDS began to change that, obviously, because mm-hmm. people were suddenly vanishing from the workplace. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, my God, that coworker was gay and I never knew. Mm-hmm. And now they're gone. So in a very quiet way, um, the reality that AIDS revealed um, about the, the bigotry in the United States against gay people began to manifest itself at the most fundamental level, and that was on human-to-human relations. You know, I've always said we've passed a lot of laws and we've done a lot of wonderful things and we've got the constitutional things change and there's been a lot of tremendous things, but, you know, honestly, uh, the, the hearts and minds of the average person are not changed by any law or by any mm-hmm. Supreme Court ruling. It's about knowing someone, having your own personal mm-hmm. life touched. And as we have seen now in, in most every study, um, you know, anywhere between 69 and 79% of the population supports gay marriage. Virtually every person in the United States knows someone who's gay. Uh, you know, these are all realities that came about because society had no choice but to deal with us because we were, we were there. We were the medical the medical issue that they had to deal with. And as that came out and began to affect families and, you know, grant some families threw their kids aside, like you mentioned, but um, in other respects, there were families who may have been very conservative religious folks and they circled the wagons around their child. And that was where the real sort of split began to happen socially in this country where the religious left began to assert itself and not just the religious right. Um, in in defending you know gay people at that time, so as someone who is uh, shall we say of an older generation than maybe many of your <laughs> listeners, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing we're not that far apart in age. Um, that it's been astonishing to see how society has evolved, and even I sometimes find myself taking for granted things that I know better because I lived through the period when they were not true, when they were, they were not things you could count on. And if anything, my, my work in history today has proven to me that nothing can be taken for granted. 
everything that we believe in and hold dear could be wiped away tomorrow if the wrong people take you know control of the reins of government um, and install an agenda that does not include people like you. Uh, we mm -hmm. saw it happen in Nazi Germany. We've seen it happen in basically every society that has descended into genocide across the country. We, how, how long did apartheid affect what was going on in South Africa? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I was I was protesting that when I was in college, and we were still dealing with it 30 years later. You know, so. Um, so all the things that we have, if anything, I hope young people appreciate what they've got and uh, do, you know, try to learn the lessons of the past because they can easily be repeated. If for anybody who doubts that, just look up the history of the Weimar Republic in Germany. You know, I think that it, and that's the other thing, which is like, there's an irony, okay, how when age are there and, and how it helps like families come back together and, you know, supporting mm -hmm. our youth. And here as we have COVID and the same people who are on the political far right are against the mask mandate and you're like in schools and you're going like, there's a lesson to be learned, which is, and if it's not taught, which is a beautiful thing about having an inclusive curriculum that you recognize some of this stuff is not brand new. You know, there are people who think all this is, like, totally new. But it, it has happened oh, before, yeah. and how was it resolved? You know? Right. I, I mean, this is just like, and so... Well, you know, there, are, there, are things that are, there are things that are different right now, and I don't mm -hmm. mean to interrupt. It, it, no, and it's fine. really, I think, it's a function of the role of, you know, back in during any of these other things, including the AIDS crisis, we didn't really have social media. We didn't have 24 hour a day news cycles. You know, that didn't really start until the Gulf War was with the birth of the 24 hour news cycle with CNN, you know. Um, so there were a lot of things today that, you know, tremendous access to information can be a blessing it can also be a curse um, it's a blessing if that information is accurate and you you are given explicit instructions on what to do it can be a curse if somebody out there is intentionally fe feeding you BS and okay. I think what so what we did not have to deal with um, with AIDS you know and certainly there were like crackpot cures offered I'm not saying there was you know it was all strict science there was a lot of mumbo-jumbo going on and there were certain people who believed you know that HIV had been created by the government to wipe out gay people and drug addicts and all this and um, and all that kind of stuff it was very similar you know to what we hear today with QAnon and, and all their mm -hmm. it's so hard to keep up with their crazy theories you don't even you just sort of say QAnon and shrug you know that's basically all you could do because you know, what day is it? Which which new conspiracy has come out? It's the new conspiracy is always whatever is required to allow them to maintain credibility in the face of mounting uh, actual factual evidence. There's always like some new angle or some new new ledge to jump mm -hmm. to or whatever, which is the nature of of you know disinformation. Um, so 
during AIDS, for the most part, even though there was a certain degree of disinformation, we had no choice but to rely upon medical help, you know, and medicine eventually, you know, came up with AZT and eventually came up with the cocktail. And we, we endured, we, we trained ourselves. You know, people complain about wearing masks when, you know, it, it was much harder to get people to wear condoms when they were coming from a generation, if not, you know, generations uh, of people for whom it was the best thing about being gay was that you didn't have to wear a condom because you couldn't get mm-hmm. pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and any, any attempt to instill uh, safer sex practices or to curtail activity or um, to even putting a condom on was seen as a political capitulation uh, to the you know hetero, heteronormative forces that wanted to choke off uh, what made being gay being gay. And if anything, that experience I think taught us about what being gay really is. We are more than a sex act, and yeah, um, and, and and that was a hard thing for a lot of people to learn because they mm-hmm. didn't have access to our history. They, you know, most gay people themselves know absolutely nothing or just this side of absolutely nothing about the true measure of LGBTQ contributions to history and culture because they were deliberately not taught about it. At the same time, everyone else was deliberately not taught about it. So you get in a situation where you can't really blame people for not knowing what they were never given allowed, you know, never allowed to learn or given a chance to learn. So today with all the the conspiracy stuff and all that it's it's very difficult to overcome people who legitimately feel the way they do because they believe all of the strange things that they have been told you know you were to talk i don't know any of these people personally um i know some people who are very lackadaisical about getting vaccinated and i you know and i think that they're just kind of idiots you know, but there are the whole there are whole swatches mm-hmm. of people in this country who are actually living inside a different version of reality than we have because of where they get their information from, and that that truly was not something we had we dealt with during HIV. If anything, we were the first ones to embrace what our doctors told us as best we could. Um, you know, yeah. all things considered. And I think it's because we paid attention to the science and eventually really did retrain ourselves um, around condom use and all that, that we were able to slow the spread of AIDS long enough um, to buy us time. And then, you know, drugs like AZT, as poisonous as it was, um, and, and other drug therapies that were coming in, all it was, it bought us time until the dawn of the cocktail came, and then all of a sudden, people were living longer and living longer and living longer. And now you've got a lot of people that have, you know, been on HIV meds for thirty years. God bless them. And um, and and there was, but there was a time, as you know, when we did not know there would ever be any survivors, mm-hmm. which is what made the AIDS quilt so powerful, because we were seeing the AIDS quilt at the same time you know, AIDS was beginning to take over everything. All of our politics, everything was beginning, was being distilled down to AIDS and AIDS alone. And it became very easy to think, you know, all these people gathered here at this protest march or whatever, they'll be dead in a year. Who will come after us? 
you know, and that's, you know, as you know, that's where the story of, mm-hmm. of legacy came from. Who will remember who came before us when we're gone if we don't even know ourselves? Do you wonder, yeah, I mean, no, because, I mean, it's amazing to me. I mean, because now we know we've got people in their 60s, 70s, 80s mm-hmm. who, are, who are still living. And right. where it's not. You know, we know it. There's these cocktails, there's these drugs, there's things that they tell you that you can do. You can live like that. How important is it that in talking about our history, you know, and and that to talk about uh, that time of those who didn't know who was going to come after them and who aren't here who went through that, mm-hmm. how important was that, and, and to have that as part of a curriculum? Well, I mean, to me, you know, uh, this is one thing, you know, where, you know, I'm already long-winded. I could talk for like an hour without taking a breath on this particular subject, so <laughs> feel free to interrupt if you want. Um, we as a people have been fundamentally denied knowledge about our contributions to world history and culture. Um, That has been at times accidental, but at most of the time it has been intentional. And it's been intentional because of the social forces um, that have controlled how education was taught, how textbooks were made, you know, what priorities were. Um, You know, the sodomy laws did not become completely neutralized in this country until 2006 think about that you know it's it's going you know we'll be in 2022 pretty soon that's 16 years ago um let's see queer people have been around for roughly two to five thousand years uh so you know uh, to we, we were essentially a criminalized group whose existence was considered forfeit long before AIDS. um and that's why so many people found it so easy to sort of um, let us die, you know. And the the message that I try to get out, because there's so many, you know, different facets of this, especially when around the story, not only of, of HIV, AIDS, but of all the other things that we have done, how we have been at the forefront of, of essentially every social justice movement um, in history. Even Black Lives Matter was started, started by queer women in Chicago. Uh-huh. women of color in Chicago. Um, you know, every social justice, everything has got somewhere some queer fingerprint on it. Um, and when I talk to young people about AIDS, there's a part of me, you know, because I'm pushing social security here, you know, that wants to bang my cane on the floor and shake my finger at them, you know. Uh-huh. You don't know how good you got it, you know, and which is kind of the same way. My, it's the same way my parents, you know, dealt with me because I, I wasn't paying enough homage to World War II. You know, it's, 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 you know, I don't mean to make light of it, but every generation is insulated by its own ignorance, right? Um, uh-huh. And, uh, but the, the part that I want to convey, whether it be about the history of AIDS or the advent of computer science or the dawn of social justice under Jane Adams or Bayard Rustin's work in the civil rights movement, whatever the, the it is that we're talking about, 
it's about letting kids know that people like them have been triumphing, triumphing, is that a word? Triumphing over adversity and challenge for countless centuries. Long before there was a Halstead Street with its bronze plaques, long before there was a legacy project, long before there was a Supreme Court decision, long before any of the stuff when there absolutely was no um, social or political safety net whatsoever, people like them were still coming up with ideas and still creating pathways forward and still inspiring people to follow them. And yes, maybe they were closeted because they didn't have any choice, but that doesn't take anything away from the quality of their work. So my challenge to young people is always, you've got all this stuff. You have access to this information. You've got Ellen DeGeneres and, and you know, folks on TV and, the, you know, the show Pose. And, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting all these anecdotal things, but I'm so old, I don't even know what young people are looking at today. But, but whatever it is, they're, you know, Ru, or you're RuPaul and all that. You have all these things right now. You know, you don't have any of the isolation, particularly, on the scale that we had it. And yet we actually achieved, we, we stared down the federal government for 10 years with no funding and still lived long enough to finally see that cocktail come into existence. We built organizations which started out around somebody's kitchen table and are now 30 and $50 million a year nonprofit agencies that are able to deliver services on a gargantuan scale when before you were lucky if you could get someone to bring you a box lunch. You know, we built these things and what I'm trying to instill, whether it be about AIDS or about our movement or about any of the other aspects of history in which LGBTQ people have been involved is to convince young people to understand they are the inheritors of a vast legacy of achievement and contribution. And they need to hold on to that and embrace that. Even if they have no role models whatsoever in their day-to-day lives, they need to know that they are the next generation. And we, it is our responsibility to give them a reason to steward forward the things we have put in place for them. Well, when you think about the stories of people, I mean, you know, often like you can see all these things going and even now, with all the advantages we have, there are people like, well, what could I be? I mean, you can look at, you know, people who came from humble beginnings, people who sure. influenced so many things, you know, and like you said, we're not just about sex, oh, and partying. You know, that's it, sex and partying. You know, there are people who, like you said, like like a Paulie Murray, about a Bayard Rustin, uh, you know, all these people who, who did these amazing things who maybe were not in the front, but they can do that. And like I said, if you don't see yourself, you know, you, you can't imagine yourself. And sure. you don't have to be closeted. And that's the reason why education is so important, even for the kids who, for reasons of the home front, shall we say, are forced to remain closeted, as well as for straight kids who you know, maybe you're closeted because they have gay friends and their parents wouldn't approve or, you know, whatever. The closet has takes many different forms, right? Um, uh-huh. But for them to learn about 
such people, and I'm so glad you brought up Paulie Murray because um, Paulie Murray is being inducted onto the Legacy Walk uh, this fall. Um, So I've been doing a a tremendous amount of research into Paulie Murray. I just finished uh, a lesson plan series for Paulie Murray on the website. Um, Now, there's an example of someone who, after all that I have read and all that I have studied, I would argue, and many people may disagree with me, but I would argue that Pauli Murray is probably the most influential person in the field of civil rights that has ever lived, including Bayard, including Martin Luther King, and all of them, because so many of the legal changes that have been brought about in the United States are directly related to Pauli Murray's scholarship. And, you know, Thurgood Marshall declared that Pauli Murray's writings were the Bible of civil rights. Uh, Uh Ruth Bader Ginsburg credited Pauli Murray for um, her own success. And what most people, of course, don't know is really that, and even though the terminology did not exist at the time, Pauli Murray was a non-binary person um, who could not embrace either the identity of male or female, but they didn't have the, even the term non-binary didn't particularly uh-huh. exist, certainly as a social, you know, identity based construct, it didn't exist. And, you know, we have the use of the, you know, the terms they and they and them and all that for, for non-binary pronoun use now, um, which is something that someone at my age still struggles with. So for all of you who are non-binary listening, if I slip up, please, you know, don't, don't, don't clobber me no. over the head. Um, but having spent so many weeks now in Polly Murray's world and understanding what they experienced from childhood going forward and all of the things that befell them over the course of their life, I am just a Astounded at what that one individual was able to achieve operating effectively in a vacuum. They didn't hardly even know anybody else who was like them, let alone any organizations or anything. And it was it was illegal to, to declare yourself anything other than the gender which you appeared to be. If you think about that, um, so even if the terms existed back then, which they didn't, um, and for those who don't understand polymers, um, uh, they were really wrestling with the concept of gender identity as early as 1930. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking almost 100 years ago. And, um, and yet they persevered. And this is the thing that I try to bring out. And I don't want to like obsess too much about Polly Murray, but I'm like clearly obsessed with Polly Murray. So forgive me. Um, that Murray's entire breadth of their scholarship focused on the use of, generally speaking, and this is a real broad generalization, but I think I, I'm not too many would disagree with me, on the use of the fact that in the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, it uses the word person instead of man. Uh And I believe that Pauli Murray's fixation on the applicability of civil rights laws to all people is directly related 
to a connection that they drew between their own self-perception as neither man or woman and that word. Which means that if Pauline Murray had been, let's say, what, what, what the young people would consider today out, you know, let's say she, you know, that there was like a whole um, trend back that suddenly emerged in the 1930s where people were going to use the words they and them, uh, you know, to, to describe uh, someone who was non-binary. Um, that, that individual would have been locked up because they would have been not hewing to the gender that they appeared to be in the public. You know, Murray used um, the, the pronouns she and her, or everything that, that they wrote was very genderized because not only was that simply the way it was at that time, it was also illegal for it to be anything else. And no one more than Pauli Murray would know that to publicly assert an identity that was contrary to their physical person would not only have um, probably gotten them arrested, but it would have been the end of their law career. They would never have worked in government policy. And none of the writings that they ever engaged in would ever have gotten the light of day or been embraced or invoked in all the Supreme Court cases that were influenced by Pauli Murray from Brown versus the Board of Education all the way up to, uh, uh, was it Bostock or Bostock, the one that, the most recent one from 2020. Um, uh, I can't remember, I'm I'm having a senior moment now, is it it Bostock? I'm sorry. But anyway, Obergefell, Windsor, um, Reed versus Reed, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, everything that challenged the applicability of the 14th Amendment's Equal uh, Protection Clause is directly related back to what Pauli Murray wrote. Think about what would have happened if Pauli Murray had been some sort of out radical and decided to completely non-genderize themselves during the course of their specific lifetime and effectively out themselves as this anomaly, nothing that they did that has become the benchmark of the way our laws are interpreted now, all the way up to the applicability of Title IX to LGBTQ people, Uh would have ever seen the light of day. So my... My attitude is that that's how history, sometimes things just happen the way they do because that's the way they're meant to happen. But I think, I think that in Pauli, understanding at a core fundamental level, person mm-hmm. and herself, was while she was able to take that thread and weave it to women's yes. rights, civil rights, and, to, uh, and had, if she was still living, I mean, she started it where it, it did come all the way back to our rights, LGBT rights, because she was so in touch with that personhood and that definition Absolutely. of personhood Absolutely. and standing for it. And that's how, you know, she wove that fabric. And right. it didn't stop when she passed, but she had put that foundation to where it just continued to, to build upon her work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, most people don't know she, uh, she, I'm sorry, once again, I'm tripping over the pronouns, excuse me, public, public listeners. Um, they, 
you know, co-founded the National Organization for Women. Uh-huh. They sat on the board of the um, ACLU. They were the ones who first successfully applied the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to overturn Alabama's standing rule of all-white, all-male juries uh-huh. was because of Pauli Murray. And, um, and so I always say, if they had been as out and open as you want them to be in order for them to have credibility in your eyes, they would never have been able to accomplish anything. And where would uh-huh. we be now without all Thank those civil rights rulings? that took place, you know? So, um, so, you know, I could, like I said, I could go on and on about Murray, but when it really just comes down to the whole breadth of history, it's to me, it's so exciting because I see the light bulbs go on over the heads of young people when they begin to hear these stories. And I'm thrilled to have Murray be joining, um, the legacy walk in the fall. Uh, Also we're doing, um, a historic milestone plaque that is called um, The Legacy of Matthew Shepard. Uh, it's not specifically about Matthew Shepard because, you know, um, Matthew was was murdered so young um, that he didn't really have much of a chance to make his own mark in the world. But we use, um, you know, use isn't really the right term, but we highlight how his murder and that of James Byrd Jr. a few months earlier became the inflection point that changed the trajectory of hate crimes law. So the plaque is actually about the history of hate crimes law going back to, I want to say, the 1880s, the first hate crimes laws that were in, um, maybe even the 1870s, the very first hate crimes laws were enacted um, to help, um, you know, blacks trying to adapt to a new role as being freed in the wake of the Civil War. Um, so we connect the dots between then and and where we're at now, ending with the very sad coda of the need for hate crimes laws because of um, the epidemic of, of the hate-motivated violence against transgender women of color and how it's a continuum. And we highlight what happened to, to Matthew Shepard as the inflection point, because the first federal statute that made hate crimes that included LGBTQ people illegal at the federal level was the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd hate crimes law. When is you know, that, and that was, like, uh, 2009, uh, October 28th, 2009, I think is when uh, mm-hmm. President uh, Obama signed it. Um, and that law had been gone had gone through several iterations over a 13 year span because the first laws that were passed, like in 1993, when um, uh, President Bush, uh, the senior H. W. Bush, signed uh-huh. the first hate crimes law that was inclusive of sexual orientation, that was a, that was a law that um, authorized this, the gathering of statistics. It did not criminalize hate crimes. It allowed them to be studied. And all the laws that sort of came as slowly evolving over time, from that time forward, um, over the next like four or five years, were all about gathering evidence, right? You know, the wheels of justice move very slowly. First, they have to define that it actually exists. 
and then you know, blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't until 1997 that a comprehensive federal law was proposed because so many states did not have hate crimes laws. And the idea was that you have to have a federal statute that made hate crimes illegal to take care of states, which ironically, like Wyoming, where Matthew Shepard was killed, um, which still to this day does not have its own hate crimes law, um, to, to, to bridge the gap be so that it was not like okay to kill somebody for reasons of hate in one state instead of another. A hate crimes law is a federal, a fe- federal charge that carries with it a, a great deal of a, you know, a much heavier penalty. So that law was introduced in 1997, and the actual original name of it is escaping me right now. Again, senior moment. But um, it, took 13, it took 13 years for that law to move and evolve and get to the point where it became under Barack Obama the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd um, hate crimes law. And for those who don't remember, James Byrd was the the black man who was chained to the back of a pickup truck um, in the summer of 1998 and dragged to his death. And those two crimes, um, James Byrd and Matthew Shepard, happening only roughly three months apart, um, were really what catalyzed the public's outrage at hate crimes, and um, and it, and, it, and the problem though in the intervening 13 years was that it was the religious right that opposed any iteration of that law that included sexual orientation, um, and that was because they they believed that there was a direct line between the passage of a hate crimes law and the criminalization of Christians being allowed to preach anti-gay hatred from the pulpit. Yeah, and, and you try to dance around hate is hate. I mean, you can, you can see on some of that yeah. what they're inciting. And as far is. as I know, they're still preaching it from the pulpit, so nothing changed. Uh-huh, <laughs> so, you know. uh-huh. uh-huh. So they're still preaching it from the pulpit. I mean, it's just like, ah. Uh, Okay, well, well, Victor, we're going to take our second break. Then we have to talk about, you know, um, the education initiative. I, I'd like to really get into to how that happened, what's happening with it. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. We're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown with my guest, Victor Selvo. You know, you and I, you and I one day are going to sit down and just, just deep dive into Pauli Murray because she affected you mm. like she affected me. You know, it was like I could not read enough. But oh, just like, absolutely. you know, and we, we, we would, you, 
we left you were talking about the Matthew Shepherd and James. Um, now I'm having to see you a minute. Moment. J- yeah, Bird. James Bird. James Bird Jr. Hate, uh, hate crimes. And you know, because we went through this, like we have people who are writing the textbooks and doing all of that. It's important that there are other avenues that they get it. How heavy a lift was it to get Illinois to say we need to have an LGBT inclusive curriculum? Well, I have to, in in the interest of full disclosure and transparency and all those buzzwords, I was (laughs) the one who was the most resistant to the effort to try and get the law passed because I was still um, operating under my um, predisposition towards loss and failure as a gay person because I've been an activist for a long time. And I always dreamed about there being such a law and the hope that someday, quote-unquote, it would be passed. When we were approached by the leadership of Equality Illinois about pushing forward with this, I was the person to confess skepticism, that it was too early, it would never happen, Donald Trump was president of the United States, are you crazy? Um, and, And I had to be convinced. And they did a good job of talking to me about, um, you know, where the state was at and, you know, Donald Trump notwithstanding where Illinois was at. And, um, and they wanted to introduce it because that's been the one thing about the leadership politically um, for LGBTQ people in, in, uh, in Illinois, thanks, thanks to the, the brilliant work of Equality Illinois, has been they really have their ear to the ground. And and they have it. They've made Illinois one of the most, if not the most, progressive states in the country. There's almost, you know, never use that word, I guess, but there's almost no LGBTQ specific laws left to pass in Illinois. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not difficult for transitioning people to have their birth certificates changed think about that mm-hmm. it's not difficult it used to take an act of congress to do that now it's just a couple of forms um so there's a whole bunch of things going on and and we have like the, the whole we're adapting now to gender gender neutral bathrooms and there's a whole bunch of things happening in Illinois right now but that said i, I, digress, I digress um when we started the push, you know, we were brought in to help write the legislation, which actually was not all that difficult because they very wisely chose, you know, Illinois has passed other education mandates in the past. Um, black history was an education mandate. Holocaust history is an education mandate. They teach about the potato, the Irish potato famine, um, hmm. women's history. There were all different kinds of mandates that were Im- okay. employed. So what they did was they took the language of all the laws that had passed with no problem and they simply took out, you know, the words Irish potato famine and inserted LGBTQ contributions to history, you know. So they had exactly the same language that just happened to be about, you know, people like us. 
And um, and that was how they moved forward with it. Where I was taken aback was that when I had always envisioned this happening, I had presumed it would be concentrated on high school. Um, because you can just get into a lot more nuance in high school, you know, as far as sexuality and all that. The But the pre-existing statutes that had passed at, at, at the mandate level were all based on K through 12. And Legacy's content was not based on K through 12. Everything we had was um, middle school and up as far as our education resources, which we began developing in 2013. Uh-huh. So now we're into 20, 2017 having the conversation 2018, the bill is introduced. 2019, it passes. So um, we really did not encounter a lot of pushback. And this, again, I credit to the leadership of Equality Illinois because they had read the tea leaves in a way that I was not able to. And, 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 we were able to do something which I think is extraordinary under a Republican governor. Bruce Rauner was governor at the time, you know, this whole thing was being discussed. The law ultimately Uh passed under Democratic Governor J.D. Pritzker. But when we met with Bruce Rauner, um, he told us he would sign the law if it passed. So it was mind-boggling that that what was happening in Illinois was so dynamic and so bipartisan and different. That doesn't mean that there was an opposition to it. I'm not trying to gloss that over, and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, we were encouraged by the fact that um, for as polarizing a figure as Bruce Rauner was, he told us from the very beginning he did not have a social agenda, and he made good on it. Most of the most significant LGBTQ positive legislation passed under Republican Governor Bruce Rauner. So it set us up for once we entered the Pritzker era, um, when the law finally was passed. Um, A great deal of precedent had already been established, as I mentioned, like the aforementioned um, uh, birth certificate you know, having your birth certificate changed and on all those kinds of things. Those are all outgrowths of laws that had passed under the Republican governor. So politics, very strange. And maybe Illinois is an anomaly in this regard, or maybe definitely it's an anomaly in this regard. But we were able to get this thing accomplished in Illinois, getting to your original question, which I think you asked 25 minutes ago. Um, it was not as difficult as I, as I thought it was going to be. Um, and... Once it finally did pass, it was like, kind of like, you know, I don't, can I say, oh, shit? And I was like, oh, shit, we actually have to write this curriculum now. Because <laughs> so, I really didn't expect it to pass for like five years, you know. So all of a sudden it was it was law and we had one year to get our act together because the, the, the time window between when a law is passed and when it goes into effect is typically, you know, anywhere from six to 12 months. So, um but fortunately, we already had, a, we, were, we were way ahead of the game. We had begun generating lesson plans in 2013, as I mentioned. So we just started to redouble our efforts. And, um, and now I want to say we have maybe 75 
lesson plans. What makes ours different from what's prevailing is that, you know, there's only five states that actually mandate the teaching of LGBTQ history in schools. And, and I'm going to name the five. Uh, California was the first. Um, New Jersey, I want to say Oregon, Illinois, that's four, I'm missing somebody. California, New Jersey, Oregon, Illinois. Um, well, whoever that fits say to Colorado. Um, we were the fifth. Interestingly, when we first introduced the bill, we would have been the second had it passed quickly. But in that intervening, uh-huh. like, ten months, three other states jumped our claim, shall we say. <laughs> Which kind of gives you gives you an idea of how rapidly the political landscape was changing, even during the Donald Trump era. So, 2019, we finally passed ours. Illinois becomes the fifth state, and um, so we look at what we've got. We look at the you know the way the mandate is worded. We begin to concentrate our efforts on people that had an impact on U.S. history, as well as Illinois history. And begin looking at the ways to build out the the access to this content because we already had the lesson plans were available, but it wasn't organized in any searchable way specifically around lesson plans. Now we've launched the education portal. So if anybody's listening, they go to our, our website, which is um, legacyprojectchicago.org. Just click on education, and I think the second option is inclusive curriculum. You click on that, it takes you to a subsite that actually has a search portal where, um, and this is the one, in order to see any of the lesson plans, you have to register. It's, it's free. It takes like 10 seconds, but you have to register to be able to see the lesson plans. Um, but you're able to fill out, um, we have like seven filters so far, so you can search by like, school subject by area of contribution, grade in school, the individual education standard, as well as intersectionality and some like, you know, tags or search terms. And a teacher, for example, can go in and pick all the different things that they're trying to fulfill. You know, they want an African-American who worked in this field uh, during this period and that they can teach to this fourth grade class. You know, they click all these things, and then it populates the search results according to what they chose, and then they can go in and pull from that content what they think works in their classrooms because our content is not about the gay movement. It's about all of history, which means that if they're talking about World War II, there are queer people there. If they're talking about computer sciences, people there. If they're talking about medicine, diplomacy, social justice, uh, anthropology, any kind of field that you can think of, there is someone in the system that relates to that. And the search portal has become incredibly popular because it's so easy for teachers to be able to access it. And the, the last thing that we're doing right now is we're going to be adding an additional filter for Common Core, you know, which was kind of basically all the rage uh you know, several years ago, and then there was a mm-hmm. big backlash against Common Core. But there's a lot of states that are that have, you know, Illinois was one of those states that when Common Core kind of fell out of favor, they developed their own guidelines um, around how to teach history and social studies and all that effectively. Um, but they were extracted from the basic principles of Common Core. 
So what our goal now is to actually create a search filter based on Common Core so that people who live in states that are still using Common Core, if even on a limited basis, will still have a criteria to search by because the Illinois standards are not obviously going to be translate to other other states, but Common Core is like the Esperanto of education, right? Also, uh-huh. All the states were exposed to it. So it'll make the content available on, on a searchable basis for other states. Um, so that's kind of like the, the next frontier of what we're doing. Right now we're really just concentrating on um, uh, making the, the individual lesson plans more robust um, and, and more high level as far as really digging into the classroom experience. And I'm very excited that the Pauli Murray stuff, I have to tell you, those are rock star lesson plans. I got to tell mm-hmm. you in it. So anybody just y'all go and just look it up. It, it's really, I hope it's, I hope it sets a standard. Honestly, if I had a dream for legacy, it would be that we become like, you know, the the Kleenex of of LGBTQ history, the go to source. You know, <laughs> we're far away from that, but that's actually where I'd love for us to be. So, what grade levels are you like? Middle and high school? It's K through twelve. K through twelve. Mm. And um, one of the really exciting projects we haven't announced to the public yet because we're still in the developmental stage. We're going to be launching hopefully, if everything goes well, by the fall of 2022, um, a series of very specifically targeted um, textbooks and activity tools for K through 5 that will feature the stories of of individual people. Again, you know, and I'm not taking away any other entities work in this realm, but there is a a real lack of education content focused on that grade range. Most of the stuff was written for six and up, so grade six and up. Um, It's the younger kids, many of whom, you know, kids are starting to come out when they're 10 years old. You know, they're starting to identify Mm -hmm. at very young ages, and and that's where... Wow. Oh, even wow. younger, even younger, some as early as, as five. Like all of us who thought we were different when we were five, but never uh-huh. said anything about it. Today's five-year-olds are actually saying something about it, which uh-huh. to me is unbelievable and fantastic. But it's about providing materials for that grade group. And that's what we're working on now is like um, a reader for grades three through five, activity cards for grades um, one and two, and then um, like picture puzzles and and things like that for K as well as for developmentally challenged mm. people. Um, so it, it's still in the design phase, but we have so much really solid education content that um, we're able to adapt to these different forms. And because there is a real lack of this content for that grade group, I think we're really positioning ourselves fairly well um, in the marketplace because, you know, legacy's content is not based upon um, 
constructs like, and again, I don't want this to sound like it's a diminution, but like there's a lot of what's out there right now is of the Heather has two mommies variety, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is really, really, really important, but it doesn't speak to contributions. It doesn't talk about people and what they did. And kids, once they realize they're different, what they want to know is who else is different like me. Exactly. And that's really what what this is about, is about giving them access, even if it's at a very, you know, mild level, about people like Pauli Murray or Catherine Lee Bates who wrote America the Beautiful, you know, or Jane Addams or, you know, the, the, the list of people, you can go on and on and on. You can tell their stories in a very sublime way that conveys to little kids, you know, that they that people like them have existed and have mattered, you know, and that's, that's missing for these kids lives. And so that's really where we're focusing our efforts. And if all goes well and funding presents itself and all, um, we'll be able to start offering these tools in the classroom, both physically in, in the form of actual jigsaw puzzles and activity cards and books, reading books, as well as digitally. Um, you know, for those classrooms that, that can use it. So so I feel like we're doing everything that we can, considering how little money we have because <laughs> uh-huh. of COVID. All these years are going to have an asterisk next to them, and it's just going to say COVID, you know, and everyone's going to fill in the blank from that. Um, but it's very exciting to me. It's very exciting uh-huh. to me because I, it, no matter how, how old it is, our history is always new because nobody you know, knows I, about it. I talked to a a mother of a transgender daughter who came, mm-hmm. who told her at four, you know, mommy, I'm a girl. Mm-hmm. And her mother, Deshana, is like so supportive, has fought for her daughter That's and everything. But at one point, her daughter said, you know, even though I know you love me, I know you... You, you've got my back. She needed to hear people who had walked her walk, lived her experience. Exactly. exactly. And that's what I hear from, from what, what, you're, what you're doing. You're providing. But we're trying. Mm-hmm. We're trying. So what has been the reception um, it, you know, to it, it, it's, it, it's a moving target, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, there's so much about activism today that is so corporatized and I don't I don't mean for that to sound as dismissive as it may come off um, you know but you know human rights campaign fund with this 30 million dollar budget you know there's there's so many entities that have to raise so much money and employ so many people there's a whole sort of structure around our activism that literally did not exist 30 years ago at all. Uh-huh. And this work that we're doing right now feels like street activism. It uh-huh. feels like you're still in a new territory. And maybe 10 years from now or even sooner than that, it won't be. Um, but that's one of the things that makes it really exciting is because you're blazing new a new path. And you can see the impact that it has on kids. Oh my God, you can really see it. And, yeah, because um, from walking the streets and every 
you know, especially during pride season, you know, you see all these flags and stuff, but that doesn't tell you our story, you know? No, not and, at all. And it might be a metric about how far we've come all up. This city has a, a gay flag and a trans flag. And, you know, I mean, it. but that, just raising that flag doesn't tell you that story, doesn't tell you about the resiliency, the strength, the brilliance of our community. Um, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, again, I'm old school, right? Um, I appreciate the sort of attitude behind all the different iterations of the flag. And I think it's fine for people to have their own version of, of the flag and their own pride. I'm still very old school when it comes to the flag because the flag as originally conceived was intended to encompass everybody, you know, every color of the spectrum of the rainbow. So that it, it meant that no matter how many new colors came out, they were all still part of the spectrum of the rainbow. That mm-hmm. notwithstanding is that we spend a lot of time dithering over this flag or that flag. And there are times when I feel like the gay flag is going to end up being like the color wheel for Benjamin Moore paint. You know, it's just <laughs> going to have so many different iterations to it that mm-hmm. it's going to be mm-hmm. nonsensical. Um, and... And and I I think that part of this is the luxury of young people. Here I am banging my cane on the floor again. Young people <laughs> not having not having paid the price that we paid to experience, um, even if in their own lives they don't feel particularly free. Because I'll be the first one to admit that the um, the benefits of advantage. In, in the way sort of our rights have expanded have first and foremost accrued to white people first and specifically white men. And it's been much slower haul. So it's very understandable why certain communities, um, especially um, trans folks, and, and trans people of color would feel the most left out and, and the most removed from all of the advantages that have accrued to white men, white gay men. I, I get that. I get that completely. But even still, there is a subcontext of our lives that has an openness in the ability to talk openly about these things, even about our gripes, we have the ability to talk about them. We have the ability to, can I say bitch about them? We have those abilities now on a very large level that literally did not exist, you know, a generation ago. So in many ways, even those who feel the most disenfranchised are still more enfranchised. (laughs) than we were back then. Um, and so much of the like the obsession with the stripes of the flag or like in, in Chicago we've been dealing with the um, the issue of, of renaming the area um, formerly known as Boys Town uh, as something else because Boys Town was offensive um, to people who weren't gay white, gay white men. And I can understand all of it, but I, I sometimes I feel like if only this much energy was available for the work that really mattered, 
in my in my estimation. Yes, symbols are very important. I get that. But arguing about symbols is symbols is not the same as changing laws. It's not the same as going into the belly of the beast and taking mm-hmm. on the Christian right. Um or, or any of these folks um who are actually the enemies. Um the people who, you know, are very similar to you but not exactly the same are not the enemy. Um, we're just different, and we could do a much better job of communicating with each other. I'll be the first one to admit that. But fighting each other, all that does is help the people that we really should be fighting. And uh-huh. and that's you know that's just kind of me being an older person, and younger people would have an entirely different take on it. And you know what? That dynamic between young and old has been playing out since long before you and I came around, and maybe it's always going to be the role of the young people to hold, you know, the old people's feet to the fire and for the old people to try and impart some sense of, of historical precedent. Um, you know, we need the impatience of the younger generation in order to, to not rest on our laurels. I get that. But at the same time, I want young people to understand we are not just some enormous group of people that is defined by our grievances. And that's what so many of the things that I look at today when I look at you know, critical race theory, which I personally embrace the teaching of that entirely, but you really start getting down into the weeds of it. And, and every um, conversation gets down to how different groups have been tormented and what that what the form and shape of that torment has taken. And I know that we need to know these things. I get it. But my collective reaction is, oh my God, every one of these identities is defined by their grievance, not by their achievements. Uh And that's because we are not taught about our achievements, about the Pauli Murrays of the world. And that's where my motivation comes from, is that I don't want people to think of themselves as just aggrieved people. Uh-huh. They, they need to do more than say, oh, oh, well, yes, I, I know that we've, you know, we've achieved things. Not give short shrift to the actual historical achievements because LGBTQ people have literally shaped the world. The world straight people have done is a result of LGBTQ contributions. Exactly, and that's something we need to have ownership of, and and, and pick our battles, and and understand that, you know, the the bifurcation into all these different groups and obsessing about the different stripes on the flag and all that. That's a balkanization of us. That is the exact antithesis antithesis of my my list that's coming out of <laughs> antithesis. <laughs> Of, of what this movement was started on. We were all in this together, regardless of what we looked like, because we didn't have any choice, right? Um, right. We were all universally hated by the same people. Um, and I'd like to get back to a little bit more of that. And to me, part of the way of doing that is to understand all the various roles in history that we've played, even even unto someone like a Pauli Murray, who today would we would understand as being non-binary, but who a hundred years ago did not even have the words. Well, you know, a lot of it to me is like what you want. Yeah. Hear that. 
and and see that this stuff is still going on. But then, like I always tell people, look at our resiliency, look at our strength, look at how much we, we contribute. And then after you go through all of that and you learn the history, you know, then stand there like Maya Angelou and say, and still we rise, you know, because right. we're not going with Still we rise. And this Absolutely. is our collective strength and beauty. Uh, and that's, that's what I think is so important. Well, I'm about to run out of time. So what I'd like to do, if you could, what's happening with the Legacy Walk? I know you mentioned Polly Mary and the Matthew, the hate crime mm-hmm. this fall. Mm-hmm. And um, how do people, like, oh, one last thing, the Illinois Inclusive Curriculum. I know it's for Illinois, but if you're from outside of Illinois and you want to just so like look at it and say, hey, some of this might work for us. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, because... The, the Illinois-specific um, coding for specific standards is only one filter. There's still, there's still six other filters. So you can filter uh-huh. by grade, school, or by subject, or whatever. It's just that it, it sometimes teachers, when they plan their curriculum, have a very specific mission to apply to a certain standard versus another or whatever. We don't have the ability to do that for every state in the union. That's what we're uh-huh. hoping that if we can bring in the, the common core filter that will help facilitate that. But there are still six other filters that anybody anywhere in the country can look at. Um, and that's, that's how I, I would say, you know, don't let the word Illinois, you know. Um, virtually only like 3% of the people in there are from Illinois. Uh-huh. It really is international. Uh-huh. Okay, and so with the Legacy Walk, when do you are you going to put up new plaques this fall? Or yeah, this fall. Paul Murray and the Matthew Shepherd are this fall. Um, the working date right now is October 16th. I'm just waiting for confirmation that the plaques will be back from the foundry. You know, where they have to be cast uh-huh. in time. Uh-huh. But that's that's the working date for the dedication. And the wall. Okay, we're hoping the to get wall, it all works, If it all works out, we'll, we'll be deployed to central Illinois in October. Um, if not, the next uh, booked date is, is in, uh, March of 2022. Everything is just so COVID-dependent, you know. It's, I know. It's, it's just such a, yeah. yeah. Wear your mask, people. Come on, you know. You know do what you got to do. Get yeah, just you said, if you wear your mask, mask, you're fine. You know, we're not asking you all to French kiss each other. Just stand there and read. Yeah, you know. Uh, really, it's just like a well, Victor. I want to thank you again. Um, like I said, one day you and I. Now that I mean, I miss not having been to Chicago. You know, I mean, I miss you not coming to Chicago. We yeah, would have a lot you know, of fun going together. But hopefully, this year, I'll be able to get there, and we could just sort of sit down and chat. But Victor, I want to thank you for the work that you do for getting it, that, you know, that it's more than a flag, it's more than, it's us, it's a community that we're people who give. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. us. Absolutely. I look forward to laying eyeballs on you in something other than a picture Um, (laughs) as soon as we can. And, you know, I I have a feeling that all these different variants and things, uh-huh. They're going to be with us for a very long time, and we're simply going to learn how to adapt. 
and people will still travel and they'll still, Uh you know, life has to go on, you know. Uh Um, So you may be making that trip to Chicago sooner than you think. Well, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. <laughs> well, okay. Detroit ain't that far away, you know. <laughs> I know. It's right around the corner. you got to come here and see our Ruth Ellis plaque. You know we oh, have a plaque yeah. to Ruth Ellis here. I know. I know. You know, that's not, I mean, that's somebody who, who I love. Victor, mm-hmm. thank you. Stay thank well. you, Michelle. Stay. Wonderful as it always is. Okay, and I'll see you sooner Soon? rather than later. I okay. hope so. All right. All right. Well, you have a good evening. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. I want to thank my guest, the executive director of Chicago's Legacy Project, Victor Salvo. The Legacy Project was inspired by the Names Project AIDS Memorial quilt displayed at the National March on Washington for LGBTQ civil rights in 1987. Some 34 years later, the Legacy Project under Salvo's leadership continues to illuminate and affirm the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer people. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.